Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. The Bible is a big book. It's composed of 66 uh, books, and it is brought into one volume that we call the Bible. And those 66 books are all written, inspired by the same author, though they had various men write. It all came from the mind of God. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so you, it should come as no surprise that when we read the Bible, it fits. It, go, it comes together. There, there aren't contradictions. There aren't conflicts. And they rely on each other. New Testament writers quote Old Testament writers and, and validate their claims in the New Testament events that occurred in the Old Testament. And that is important because if you dismiss some story in the Bible or dismiss the historicity of some event in the Bible, maybe in the Old Testament, chances are you'll probably also pervert or have a ripple effect, a domino effect on other matters, other doctrines, other teachings in the Bible elsewhere. That is true with the Old Testament story of the flood. I know there are a lot of people that just can't get their arms around the historicity of the flood. Really? Y'all believe in a flood? A worldwide global flood where all these animals got stuck on an ark and, and floated around for about a year? Are you kidding me? You really believe that? You take that literally? Well, you see, when we trifle with that Old Testament story in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8 then chances are that we will also pervert what Jesus had reference to in Matthew chapter 24 when he used the flood and the story of Noah as a backdrop to teach about his second coming and his return and his and the judgment of God. You pervert the story of the flood, you might pervert Jesus' teaching on his second coming. If you pervert the story of the flood, you might pervert uh, Peter's message about the importance of baptism. You see, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 makes reference of that Old Testament flood and uses that reference as a, a groundwork or foundation to say that baptism saves us, not the water, but God saves us in the event of baptism. You pervert the story of the flood, you potentially pervert the point that Peter was making in 1 Peter 3.21. You pervert the story of the flood in the Bible, and you also possibly pervert the nature of saving faith. That the writer of the Hebrew book, the book of Hebrews, said in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, he describes the faith of Noah. And how Noah acted and was saved by his faith. And if we change that story in the beginning, it has a ripple effect. It's kind of like doing a math problem. Higher math, where if you get something wrong in your calculations, it's going to affect every step of the way and it's eventually going to affect your answer. Best thing to do is just leave it alone and believe it and let it be what God said it was and trust that that's true. 
God has demonstrated himself through abundance of evidences that he is God and that the Bible is his word and it's trustworthy. And so this morning I want us to look back to the event of the flood, to the story of Noah and the ark, and I want us to see what the Bible has to say about some things with reference to that event. Now, as you probably know, there has uh, taken, uh, grabbed a lot of uh, headlines and a lot of ink has been written or used on this movie that has just come out entitled Noah. Um, you may have heard some reviews that uh, I, I've read reviews of the, the movie that said, oh, it's great. It's great. It's a, it's a fresh look at this biblical story. I've read reviews that said, It's nothing like the biblical story. And so what I did and and what Kim and I did this past week is we went and we watched uh, this movie so that I'd know for myself and not just simply write on the evidences that somebody else had shared with me. But I want to share some things about that movie, not a whole lot of time spent on it, But I just want to show you what has been done and what's being said in our culture today and how the biblical message is being presented. And then I want us to really just get back to the text. And what are there, are there lessons that we can learn from the flood that God intended for us to learn, not what Hollywood wanted to instill in our minds? And I would say it's really easy to dismiss things, you know, it's just so ridiculous. And offhand, you know, dismiss it and give it no attention. But the problem is that reality or perception is reality for a lot of people. How many people believe that Moses and Charlton Heston looked a whole lot alike? You know, because that's the way he was presented. And uh, we just got that in our minds. You know, they look alike. And, and there are, there are things, myths that continue to be perpetuated over and over and over again because what we see is the way we feel like it came down. And, and there's tremendous power to present a story. And if the story is inaccurate, it creates in the minds of people, uh, they, they embrace a mistake. And so I want us to look at what is being said in this movie. First of all, I'd like for you, I want to read a quote from Ari Handel, or Handel, he is the co-author or the co-writer of the book of Noah, which from which came um, this movie. But here's what he said. He said, what I'd tell people is that, that it's very important to us that nothing we actually did directly contradicted the Genesis story. There are some places where people think we did, and I just say we didn't. It was all grounded somewhere. It wasn't just the Genesis story the way you expected it, but it's grounded. So here's the man who wrote the book by which or from which the movie was made. And he said, listen, we've heard people say that this isn't biblical. He said, I beg to differ. This is a biblical account, a biblical rendition of what actually took place. And he went further to say it is all grounded in the Genesis accounts. Let's see if that's true. I'm going to share with you a summary of events that took place in this movie. 
and then we'll get to the, the real part of the lesson and share with you what God says and, and some lessons that we can learn from what God said about the ark. Here's a fair summary. It's not complete, but it's fair. In the beginning, God created evolution. And through the process of time and through the process of this evolution, eventually Adam and Eve are brought onto the scene. And it didn't take very long for Adam and Eve to realize sin. They're tempted, they partake of the forbidden fruit, and they're driven out of the garden. And then from there, Cain kills his brother Abel, and things just start spiraling downhill, and things become very quickly a mess. Man became fallen and sinful and corrupt. And although God had patience with their corrupt nature and character, he eventually got his cup of wrath filled. And he said, enough is enough. And I'm going to bring an end to this world. And I'm going to send a flood. And all of mankind, except those who are on the ark, will be destroyed. The thing that I find interesting is that as you watch the movie, the thing that upsets God the most And there was plenty of depravity depicted as you looked at the movie and the way the people behaved and so forth. But the thing that pushed God's button the most was not, you know, murder and corrupt natures and and the, the harm to fellow man. It was the harm that man was doing to the environment. It seemed that God had a real problem with what you might describe as a scorched earth policy uh, of early industrialization. Um, because of their industrialization, they had mined and stripped the land bare and they had harmed nature. And the trees were no longer there and it wasn't a grassy place. It was barren and rocky and, and that just really upset God. Look at what man had done to his creation, the earth. Look at what man had done to the animals. And so God said, I've had enough. To demonstrate this point, on one occasion, one of Noah's sons picked a flower because he thought it was pretty and he wanted to look at it. And his father saw him pick that flower. And Noah immediately came to him and corrected him for doing that. You can't pick flowers. Those aren't, those have roots and, and they're alive and you just killed a flower by picking the flower. That's the kind of environmental message that is, that, that made God angry. On another occasion, Noah, there were some men hunting an animal and, and they killed this animal. And Noah has conflict with them and, and eventually one of the men is laying there prone, and he begs for mercy, and Noah murders him. And in so doing, he said, this is justice. You see, he took the life of this man because that man had taken the life of an animal because he was hungry. There's, It's that policy that is what God says, we got to do something. We've got to rid the world of people like this. And so he instructs Noah 
to build an ark. This ark is pretty big, but no problem. Because how are you going to, to get that much wood in a barren landscape that has been stripped of all greenery? Well, Noah was given a seed, and he placed that seed in the ground, and he covered it up, and suddenly a forest grew. As far as you can see, it, it was reminiscent of Jack and the Beanstalk, literally. That's what I whispered to my wife. He planted the seed, and this here it comes. And so he had all the wood he wanted. But still, that's a big ark. How's Noah and his three sons, who, by the way, were still very young, um, how are they going to uh, build an ark that size? Well, no, no worries. They had some rock monsters to help them. There were these beings, these rock monsters. They, they were rocks. They could roll up into a rock and you'd think it was just a rock, but then it could just come to life and stand up and it'd be three times as tall as a man and, and, and they were fallen angels. And these rock monsters were called watchers. They had been sent to earth to help man, but they didn't help man. They couldn't stop man from becoming corrupt. And so God punished them and turned them into rocks. And so here they are walking. They had like arms and and what looked like maybe wings. They were kind of two arms and then they had two legs. So there were six-legged rocks walking around. And boy, they could really cut down a tree. They, they would take a tree and uproot it and just put their hand around the, the, and just pull it through and strip it of all its bark and limbs and, and Noah had a, a you know, a, a beam to go into the ark. So that's how Noah built the ark. When it came time to get on the ark, Noah eventually enters the ark with his wife and his three sons. And their one wife, two of the sons weren't married. Just the one son had a wife. And there was also a stowaway, uh, Tubal-Cain, that we read about in Genesis 4. He also climbed in and got into the ark and hid and uh, survived while on the ark by eating some of the animals that were on the ark. Uh, bringing into extinction, I suppose, those uh, animals. While on the ark, Noah gathered his family together and said this, the reason God had us build this ark is because he wanted to save the animals. We're not the object of the salvation. Once we get off the ark and fulfill our mission in protecting these animals, we are to, and, and he formed a murder-suicide pact with his family. He told his oldest son, you kill your mother and I. And then he told the next brother, you kill your brother. And then the youngest brother was to kill his brother. And then when he was alone left, he would die. And that would be the end of man, which was God's purpose. And the animals would be saved from all the terrible things men do. While on the ark, the one daughter-in-law discovers she is with child. And Noah is bent on murdering that child. 
Because of his belief that man isn't worth saving, he said, as soon as I have a baby, I'm going to kill it. She happened to have twin girls. And a good bit of time is spent with Noah acting irrational and almost crazed in an attempt to murder those twin babies and had a knife to them and finally just couldn't go through with it. He was so distraught that he couldn't go through with it that he went off after the ark landed. He went off and lived by himself and felt like he was a failure. Finally, the daughter-in-law went to him and said, listen, maybe, maybe you weren't a failure. You see, maybe the fact that you couldn't bring yourself to kill those children indicates that um, there's some goodness in man. And maybe it wasn't God's intent to destroy us after all. Maybe, maybe we have a right to live. And with those wise words, Noah decided to go back to his wife, and that's the end of the story. Now, again... What the author said is, we actually did nothing that directly contradicted the Genesis story. He said, it was all grounded somewhere. I just wish it were grounded in the Bible. I I don't know where it was grounded in, but it wasn't grounded in the Bible. That's what's being promoted today in in the movie theaters uh, with regard to the the movie Noah. If you want to go see it, that's what you're going to go see. If you're going to see a Genesis account of the flood and Noah, you're not going to get that. What you're going to get is the summary that I, I shared with you this morning. And again, why I think that's important is because perception is reality. And if that's what some people who won't open a Bible, but that's what they're presented with, how many of those things that seem absolutely absurd to you, to those who are biblically illiterate, how many of those things might be embraced as a part of the Genesis story? You see, that's the danger of it. But here's what I want to do for the rest of the time. I want to share with you what the Bible says about the Genesis account of uh, the flood. And I want to share some points that I think will be helpful to us. I, I don't want to retell the story. I think probably we're all pretty familiar with the story. But what I would like to do is to make some application from some of the truths that are contained in this story. And the first thing is this. God's grace does not equate to my ease. I can't tell you how many people I have met through the years who who wanted to become a Christian because life was hard for them and it was difficult and they they had lost their job and their wife was mad and their kids had rebelled and and their home life was falling apart and and you know there's all these troubles. I've got to turn to Jesus because I've got too many troubles. Nowhere does the Bible promise that if you give your life to Him, and if the God shows you grace, that it means your troubles go away. That's a popular notion, but it's a mistaken notion. Listen to what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 and and verse 8. Listen to what God said of Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But that grace didn't mean, Noah, it's going to get easy for you now. What it meant for Noah is things are going to get tough. You have become an object of my unmerited favor. 
I'm proud of you, and I'm going to bless you, but those blessings are going to be difficult. Think about what it was like. Think of how difficult it must have been for Noah to build an ark. Do you understand the dimension? You know, we have in our minds, and just as crazy as this man's account of Noah is, also just as wrong are these cute little pictures of this little boat with giraffes poking their heads through the top, and and you got this little little cute thing here. That's just as wrong and mistaken. The boat, the ark was huge. I started to measure off, and I couldn't quite do it, but I'm going to eventually. But the ark was 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. A cubit was the span from the tip of your finger to your elbow and averages between 18 and 20 inches. If you took 20 inches, that means the ark is actually 500 feet long, 83 feet wide, and 50 uh, feet, or excuse me, 83 feet wide and 50 feet tall. If you take about that middle section where it says hope and you take faith and you go across, that's about 80 feet. That'd be about the width of the ark. The, the height of the ark was 50 feet. I think that screen is 12 feet tall. And it's not 12 feet to the bottom of it standing here. So you, you got about two more screens to go up above that screen to get to the, the height of the ark. And the length of the ark Standing here and looking down that hallway, Greg has already measured this out on one occasion, and, and I've walked it off too, but going all the way down the hallway and through the, the, the small room where we get our food and everything, all the way to the kitchen. That's the length. That wide, that high, that long. Three stories. It's not wasted space. Three stories on this ark. How in the world are you going to build that? You have no power tools. How are you going to do this? I mean, chop down how many trees? Pull them from where? Can you imagine what a job that must have been for Noah and his sons to build this huge ark, three stories? Then pitch it inside and out. God's grace doesn't mean our ease. Noah was a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but it meant, boy, I've got work to do. And life is not getting easier for me, it's getting harder for me. I want us to understand that principle. Because I don't want us to get disillusioned in God, thinking that I've got to obey the gospel, I've got to be a Christian, because when I become a Christian, all my problems are going to go away. No. God never promises that. His grace doesn't equate to our ease. Luke 17 and verse 10 says that after we have done all that we can do, we're still unprofitable servants. We, we need to consider how, how indebted are we? Who would want to become a Christian if God's grace means there's difficulties? What, why would I become a Christian? Because of His grace. Do you understand what He's saving you from and what He's saving you for? No matter what the cost, it's worth it. So we work, and we live for Jesus, and we deny ourselves, and we do the hard things that God calls us to do because of His grace. 
It's not easy, but it's worthwhile. Here's a second lesson that I learned from the ark and Noah, and that is that Noah had a faith that persevered. Oh, I can only imagine how many times he must have thought about quitting, or at least the thought must have run through his mind. He he dismissed it. But boy, wouldn't there have been days when you just wanted to throw your hands up and say, enough. And and the kind of faith, you know, Genesis chapter 6 tells us in verse 3 that God was going to give man about 120 years. It was, it was a period of grace. You know, some have suggested that maybe that was how long man was going to live at this point. I don't think that's the point. I think he was saying, I'm going to give you this time to repent, to change. They didn't. And it was during that time, according to what Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 says, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Can you imagine preaching during a period of time of possibly 120 years and no one responding to your preaching? No one. He only takes his wife and his three sons and their three wives into the ark. That's it. Can you imagine how easy it would have been to have given up and quit because I don't see any results and I'm frustrated and I'm ridiculed? I just want to quit. Noah's faith was such that he would not quit. And consider this, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 says that he did and and lived and had faith in things that were not yet seen. There was no indication that the flood was coming. There were no hints. There were no, nothing that he could hold on to and say, oh, we're getting closer. You see that? The signs that we're getting closer. And, and, and to, to give him more, he was acting in faith about things that he had no visual, no confirmation of, except for the fact that the Lord told him. And he operated for 120 years that way. Can you imagine that? Listen, we want answers now. We want results. We're results-oriented. I need confirmation. What if God called us to things that had no confirmation, no proof of approval for a long period of time? In the first century, in Second Peter chapter 3, there were those who were skeptical of the whole Christianity thing. Jesus is coming again. And you remember what they said? All things continue like that. Where is he? Where's Jesus? You say he's coming back, but man, it's been 30-some years since he's been gone. Where is the promise of his coming? That was hard on those Christians. We're talking about 30 years. How long can we serve God without confirmation? How long can we trust God just taking him at his word without any validation? That's the kind of faith Noah had. I'm amazed at Enoch. The Bible says of Enoch in in Genesis chapter 5 that he walked with God for 300 years. If we were to walk with God for 300 years, some of us would have a cardiac arrest. I mean, are you kidding me? I can't go any longer. I'm just waiting for it to get over with. I mean, it's been hard. Just let me get through this. Let me, let, let the end come. Enoch walked with God for 300 years. 
Noah was a man who walked with God in obedience. And we need to have that same dogged determination and faithfulness in serving him that if the promises aren't fulfilled in our lifetime, we still trust them because God spoke them. Here's a third thing that I learned about Noah, and it's that God will not abandon the faithful. God called Noah to a task, and he didn't leave him to himself. He was there with him. Oh, it was a huge task. And God stayed with him. And, and those who, sometimes skeptics will say, oh, you kidding me. You, you believe that Noah ran over to Australia and got a couple kangaroos, and then he ran over to Africa and got a couple lions, and then he ran over to, you know, and, uh, that's what you have Noah doing? Oh, I don't believe that. Well, neither do I. That's not what the Bible says. If you look at what the Bible says, you'll be reminded that this was a miraculous event. Everything about this is miraculous. And in Genesis chapter 6, and uh, let me see if I can find the, the verse, verse 20, of the birds after their kind, the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you. No, we didn't have to go running around catching animals. The Lord brought them to him. The Lord was with him. The Lord didn't desert Noah. And furthermore, look at the statement made in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1, where God said, Noah, come into the ark, you and all your family. What's the difference in come into the ark and go into the ark? The location of the speaker. God invited Noah to come into the ark, meaning his presence was there as well. How did Noah take care of all those animals? How did all that take place? I don't know the details. We're not given it, but I know he didn't do it alone. God was with him. He said, come into the ark. He brought the animals to Noah. God gave Noah a huge task. But he said, I'll be with you in it. And it reminds me of the task that we have in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. Wow, what a task. We're to go into all the world and take the gospel to the lost. How in the world are we going to do that? It'll be difficult and time-consuming and costly. But as we go, he goes with us. And then here's the final point I want to share with you this morning. There is a limit to God's patience. When God looked down at man and saw that every thought, every intent of man's heart was to do wickedness continuously, God said, I've had enough. I'm going to... Wipe them out, and we're going to start again. There is a time. God is a gracious God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but his fellow man did not. God is not so loving or does not have such a shallow kind of love that he will overlook the sins of people and just to, to get along. God calls men into accountability, and he will not overlook the sins of the world. And so God brought a flood, destroyed all mankind. The sinfulness of man was gone. And Noah and his family 
who were righteous and who had found grace, they're given a new lease on life. They're given a new world. They're the new Adam and Eve with no sin left in the world, no wicked people. They have a new beginning. Well, friends, there is an end to God's patience today. We live, and we live sometimes in rebellion to God, and we don't see any, there's no catastrophe. It's like in the days of Noah. They were doing things contrary to the will of God, and nothing was happening. The earth wasn't opening up and swallowing them up, and, and they weren't paying for their sins in that fashion, and so they thought they were getting away with it until the flood came and swept them away. And how many people today think that they can violate and flaunt the will of God and do what they wish and live as they wish in violation to God's will? And what? What happens? There is no God. He's not the kind of God anyway that will bring judgment upon me. Or if there were, he would have already done something to me. We're getting by with this. Jesus reminded us in Matthew chapter 24 that when he comes again, that he'll come as it was in the days of Noah, where men and women will be eating and drinking and giving in marriage, and they'll just be minding their own everyday business, and then destruction will come upon them. I know the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 10 that under the law of Moses, people who disobeyed God, they were punished. But of how much sorer punishment do you suppose those worthy who have trodden underfoot the sacrifice of the Son of God, have counted his blood as a common thing and have insulted the spirit of his grace? You think you can do that to God? You think you can count the sacrifice of Jesus as no big deal? As a common thing? And that you can just walk on that blood, just track through it like it's nothing? Like you'd wipe your feet on a rug? You think you can do that to what God did for you in sending His Son? Do you think you can insult the Spirit of His grace, this offer to, to save you, and you reject it, and you live every day in rebellion to it, and maybe it's just... The rebellion of procrastination. Oh, I will, I will, but not today. The day's coming when God's cup of wrath is full. And when he comes, it'll be as in the days of Noah. And those who aren't in the ark of safety, Jesus Christ, will suffer destruction. That's the story of Noah. And that's why it's repeated a number of times in the New Testament as well, because it's not just an historical story. It is a true historical story that has lessons for us that will help us to prepare ourselves for a coming judgment, a coming meeting with God someday. God is gracious. And we are the recipients of his grace. But he won't tolerate rebellion forever. The day is coming when judgment will come. And if that day were today, what if God in his grace said, I'm going to give him one more chance. I'm going to let him go to church today. And I'm going to let them hear my message preached, and I'm going to let them hear an invitation to accept my son in the salvation that I've offered through him. And you know what? If they don't respond today, we're just going to be done. It's over. What if today were that day?
As we sing this song of encouragement, I want you to ask yourself, am I in the ark of safety? If the judgment were to come like the flood of Noah, without warning, without signs, it's just upon us, would you be lost or saved? If you're here this morning and you find out and you come to the conclusion that I'd be lost, then you need to do something about that. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Take him at his word. Do what he said. He'll keep his promise. If you're a child of God already but unfaithful and, and maybe you have not been living for him. Maybe you've wandered. Maybe you've gotten tired. Maybe your faith has grown weak because of the struggle. Remember what it's, what is at stake. It's the salvation of your soul. If you need to be saved this morning, we invite you to come as we stand together and sing.